What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Dr. Lee Unhinged. I'm Dr. Maxfield. And I'm Dr. Shaw. <laughs> uh, today, what are we going to be talking about? We're going to give you a little intro. I got to update you. I saw the Barbie movie, like I promised. So I got to update you on the results of that. We'll be seeing Oppenheimer this weekend. So I'll get to compare mm. those. This I know you don't. You come here for the skincare, but I'm giving you movie updates. So either consider it as a bonus or a minus. So today we're going to be talking about the role of a particular molecule called IL-17 in aging, the rise of dermatologic skincare, which we've mentioned before, whether or not muscadine wine can improve your skin elasticity, and LED masks turn out to be the beauty product that everyone is buying nowadays. So we're going to be talking about all of these things. Let's get into it. Perfect. So yeah, tell me how was this movie? Because I haven't seen a new movie. I feel like I haven't seen a new movie in years to begin with, let alone something that's really hot off the press. How was your take? Yeah, I haven't been motivated to go to the movie theater in a really long time, but I was influenced, heavily influenced by the social media excitement around the Barbie movie. Now, I went to see it. I heard there were some political undertones. I really don't think that that was the case at all with this movie. I thought it was just fun and goofy. I thought I was going to hate it, to be honest, but I actually ended up liking it a lot. I thought Ryan Gosling was hilarious in the movie. Um, now, there was uh, Will Ferrell played an important role in the movie as well. And so it felt very much like a Will Ferrell movie in many ways. Like it was like sort of over the top comedy in many scenes of the movie. So it reminded me of almost Anchorman type comedy. So I think people who like those types of movie will will actually like it. So yeah, it was just different than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be more political, more gender focused than I think it actually ended up being. I think it was more fun, goofy, and actually showed you a different light. So I actually liked it quite a bit. I, I said it was low-key good on my Instagram story and people were like, high key, high key. It was high key. <laughs> so I'll let you know what I think about Oppenheimer next. So first let's talk about this IL-17 and its role in aging. So where is this coming from? Why are we bringing this up? So the, the reason this is interesting, I think to us as dermatologists, like, cause this sounds like a random number, like letters, number, letters, number. But for us, this is an integral part of the psoriasis inflammatory pathway. And so we actually have very specific medications that we use systemically to treat psoriasis. And they're incredibly effective in that space. Uh, the safety has actually been a huge step up from traditional psoriasis therapies. And now if someone has extrapolated this molecule and shown that this is a signaling pathway that induces skin aging or aging in general, then this just opens up a whole nother arm of possibilities for the way we would use potentially, potentially use these medications. So I think it's an interesting take. Now, kind of fill us in, I guess, as to what they saw or what they found, or is there any nuance to this that we need to be aware of? Yeah, it's sort of interesting. So interleukin-17 is a molecule, uh, an inflammatory molecule that our body naturally produces. And it's activated by other molecules, but then it activates other molecules. So it's sort of like a, a molecule that acts on other molecules, which then perpetuate, 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 perpetuate the inflammatory cascade in the body. So basically some type of insult happens, these molecules get ramped up. And when they get ramped up, you see basically signs of inflammation in the body, whether that's fever, whether that's redness to the skin, dilation of blood vesicle, vessels, um, 
bringing in inflammatory molecules, um, bio like neutrophils and um, lymphocytes, basically white blood cells into uh, the target organism, sometimes the skin. And so we know when IL-17, I'm going to do this, try to try to do this the easiest way now. We know <laughs> that when IL-17 is elevated, it leads to a condition on the skin called psoriasis. So psoriasis is these inflammatory plaques that start off as redness, but then they become very thick scale on the body as a result of this inflammation. And so IL-17 plays a key role in this. And so what this article published in Nature Aging found was that high levels of IL-17 in the skin was also associated with aging. Um, basically, these produces low levels of inflammation um, that are kind of hard to see with just by looking at the skin, but they basically affect everything from you know, the way, the, the amount of redness in the skin, the elasticity of the skin, um, and also it affects the DNA too um, on a molecular level. And so basically they found that if they were to tamp down IL-17 by blocking IL-17, not permanently, that it would have an effect on decreasing transepidermal water loss that plays a role in hydration of the skin. It would improve wound healing and it would also improve the genetic markers of aging. And so they looked at these by decreasing the IL-17 levels, what effect it had at the level of the skin, and basically a lot of the markers that cause aging were decreased. And so they were saying, well, potentially we could create some type of suppression of IL-17 and that could help with aging. Um, I think there's a lot of things that go into this and we, ha we understand this in psoriasis that it's not necessarily a good thing to tamp down IL-17 too, right? Because IL-17 is there as part of your immune response to insults and injuries, right? So if you decrease IL-17 levels, you will be more prone to infections. And so if you were to do that on the skin, is it possible that you would be more likely to get skin infections? I don't know, um, but it's something to think about for sure. Yeah, there's going to be two sides to this and the IL-17 you know, and I think like we we're mentioning, or I mentioned it before, they do decrease your immune system and not because the more selective you get, the less it seems to do it overall. And so the better we can identify these individual inflammatory markers, you can still get a really robust effect. And this is what we see with psoriasis while still having some safety. And like, I think IL-17 in particular is involved in protecting us from candida. So we might see more yeast infections if we come out with these like universal IL-17 blocking skincare ingredients, you may get more fungus on your skin. But we'll see. Uh, promising, interesting. We'll see where this goes. I, I'm, I'm not very, I don't know. This is one of those things I feel like is maybe going to just kind of wash away and we may not have like a whole new IL-17 blocking line from CeraVe in five years. But just the same, it is interesting. Hopefully something will come of it that's useful. What I think I find with a lot of these type of studies that come out, right, is that you see, okay, well, if we decrease IL-17 levels, then that could be beneficial for aging. And where that really seems to take off is in a very niche community. Uh, it's that longevity community of people who are taking things that are used in other, like, for example, a lot of the anti-aging community was started taking metformin even though metformin is for diabetes, there was some evidence that potentially metformin could play a role in longevity as well. And so, and also, you know, decreasing your insulin-like growth factors and other signs of metabolic syndrome. So a lot of people in, in the anti-aging community started to take metformin as well. And so I wonder if 
the longevity anti-aging community will look at this more of a niche thing. And some of these wellness centers would think about, okay, how, what are ways to decrease IL-17 levels and will they implement those somehow? Um, I think that there's a lot of thought that goes into this. How do you locally do this? I mean, when we decrease IL-17 levels in the body and psoriasis, there's a medication called Cosentix. It's an injection medication. And so it decreases IL-17 all over your body. So then you're going to, you, you may just want that effect at the skin level, but it's going to affect the entire body. So if we're not going to be injecting it, is it topical? Can IL-17 inhibitors penetrate the skin on the topical level? So I don't know necessarily that there's any functionality to this, but I think that the extrapolation I take from this article is that inflammation, which we know, causes and contributes to aging. So just inflammation in the body, no matter what form it comes in, whether it's IL-17 or otherwise, will lead to signs of aging. And so are there other ways that we can decrease inflammation in the body? I think one is diet. You know, we talked about intermittent fasting and how that decreases markers of inflammation. We've talked about the Mediterranean diet and some of our much older videos and how that can decrease inflammation in the body. And so what's good for the heart could be good for the skin. Um, and then are there things topically that we can be using that can decrease inflammation in the skin? Your antioxidants, um, your sunscreens, of course, are decreasing inflammation. And so are there things that we can also be doing that are not just specifically sniping out IL-17 that could help with the quality of our skin? And I actually think that then this is a good segue into our article on the de-alcoholized muscadine wine playing a role in improving elasticity of the skin because these are somewhat connected because the, this follow-up article is talking about how muscadine wine, once they remove the alcohol from it, could potentially improve skin elasticity. So I think these are sort of interconnected. Yeah, I do too. That's exactly where I was going to go with this. I was thinking we need to jump ahead and just go right to the muscadine wine. The if you For those of you out there, and I'm assuming most of you out there have never tried muscadine grapes, because I hadn't. Until I moved to North Carolina, I'd never heard of such a thing. These are incredible grapes. They are so crazy unique. The out, Let me just describe this grape to you. Maybe I should get closer to the microphone so you get like the full experience. A muscadine grape is a very large grape and it has a very thick peel. <laughs> so I can't do this seriously. That's a GMO. It's, it's a yeah. GMO grape. Is it really? Is this, no, it's no. Not. Is this the one that so. is this the one that tastes like cotton candy? No, that's a cotton candy grape, which you know, uh, you've given me these muscadine grapes. Remember we stopped at I that think, place on the side of the road? Yeah. That's it. They grow everywhere like weeds here. I, there's some outside my office and I'll eat them. They'll they'll grow randomly. I'll just pick them off the I'm sure they're covered in gasoline and all the things in the air, but but they're super, super, super richly sweet. Um, the the uh, outer peel is really thick and tart. It's just like a, the ultimate flavor combination. The seeds inside are incredibly, horribly bitter. So if someone does GMO these and create a seedless version, I'm going to be a huge fan. Um, they also have muscadine ice cream out here. But the, all of that to say, if you can get your hands on these grapes, try them. Muscadine wine is equally sweet. It's like a heavy dessert wine. And... This study looked at an alcohol-free version of wine because this is kind of an age-old study. Alcohol has, and especially red wine, we have this combination. We know it's a strong antioxidant. We actually do know that antioxidant studies, or studies do show antioxidants even consumed, do have health benefits, including benefits for your skin. Now, it doesn't have to be red wine necessarily. It's kind of, in general, the polyphenols, and that was actually talked about in this article a little bit. But uh, if you can take out the alcohol, you might get the benefits without some of the risk. Because overall, alcohol consumption does actually increase your risk of cancers overall too. So probably the alcohol may negate 
the antioxidant function of red wine. So if you can take out the alcohol, keep the red wine, keep the muscadines, you're going to get a ton of flavor, a ton of benefit and lose the downside. So I'm a huge fan of this idea. I need, I need some of this badly. I think that we found a new business for Dr. Lee. It's the muscadine, <laughs> muscadine juice, basically, because it's not even really wine is, at this yeah. point. So we, we get some muscadine grape juice and we start marketing it for anti-aging. So <laughs> basically what they, <laughs> what they, what the researchers found at the University of Florida was that muscadine grapes have unique polyphenolic profile. We know that polyphenols, like Dr. Maxfield mentioned, have anti-inflammatory properties and they have a study that suggests that the muscadine wine polyphenols have the potential to improve skin conditions, specifically looking at elasticity and transepidermal water loss. They looked only at middle-aged and older women. I won't say what those numbers are because people will debate <laughs> on what those mean. And they basically said that these can decrease your inflammation and oxidative stress, which we do know affects quality of the skin and elasticity. Um, they only looked at this for six weeks. So I don't know how, how well we, and it's only 17 patients that they looked at, but I don't know how well we can extrapolate this data to the larger population. But I think it's interesting um, about just the general antioxidants and how they can improve the quality of our skin. Yeah. And that, that's why I got on the green tea kick too. There's like a lot of green tea benefits that we all know of. I'm actually more interested in the muscadines than the antioxidants here. But uh, overall, I do think this is something you can incorporate. I'm excited about it. Uh, yeah, I've got it. We'll, we'll, get, we'll do a muscadine grape giveaway one day here in the future. Not really, but one day. Um, <laughs> no, we won't. We won't do we that. Won't. Um, let's, let's talk about next. Um, the uh, the LED masks again. Mm. Um, you know, we've talked about this. We've actually, we were early proponents of this technology. In fact, I remember when we were researching for this video that we had done on YouTube, and this is probably two years ago now, there was no videos, no scientific videos on it. Um, so we had to like, a lot of times, like when we're doing research for our videos, we're looking at PubMed articles, we're looking at what's written in the press about these things. And then we're also looking at like other video, other creators. Has anyone said anything about these before that we can either agree with or disagree with from our scientific perspective? And I remember when we were researching this video, there was nothing on LED masks, nothing substantial. Um, and since we've released that, I think LED, um, I'm not saying we're responsible for the trend of LED by any means. <laughs> I'm just saying we have one of the first scientific videos on it. Um, and now it's like really being, it's, it's really taken off. And I think this is a testament in my opinion to science backed devices and science backed skincare, because, we did, certainly did not lead the charge on it. We were responding to good information that was out there, but there are other devices that have come out, that have come and gone during this last three-year period that were not backed by science. And so you can have really great marketing that can get these products into consumers' hands and you basically fooled them at that point, <laughs> but it's like fool me once, right? But that's how marketing works, right? So if you fool somebody once and the product doesn't work, then you're not going to get a high resale rate. And you're also not going to get other consumers because they're going to tell their friends it didn't work for me. And so when you have something like LED, 
the reason why it's successful, I think, in a marketplace is because there's good science to support that it actually works. Um, and so this article is coming out of Glossy, basically saying LED face masks are the beauty tool people are actually using. And this is from July 28th, um, this article. So what are your thoughts? That's today. That's so recent. So uh, I, I do think it's interesting, the staying power of LED masks. Um they definitely have a unique look. They have a unique application. I think it's because they're very gentle and generalizably recommendable that it's a easy topic to talk about along with the fact that they're very interesting and the science is good. Uh, I think what what's funny about LED masks is the str- what's the struggle? Because I think you have two barriers to entry for LED masks. One is the price and they can be relatively expensive, but we've talked about this before. It's a one-time purchase and it really actually is equivalent, certainly equivalent to the topical serums and products you're using throughout the course of the year. And so there isn't much repurchase there. And then the second side of it is the inconvenience. And so you spoke to how this reflects on the science data-based technology that's going into these at-home devices. I think it speaks to our inattention and inability to sit still for three minutes because most of people's struggles are just being able to use this over two to three minutes. These are not long, this is not a long treatment session. And they have eye holes which I know you can keep your eyes closed to be even safer, but it's actually a pretty quick treatment, pretty easy to incorporate into your skincare routine. Um, and it's a one-time purchase. There is a lot of upside. It's data-backed, like you said. So I'm still a proponent for these. Um, actually, my wife was just asking me if she should use it for her rosacea-sensitive skin. It's like, yeah, actually, you really probably should be using this for that. So I do think they're going to be around for a while longer. Um, they have kind of become a foundational staple in the at-home devices. I'm really excited to where devices are going to go in the future because tech is getting better. It's getting cheaper. And I think safety is really good. Safety, not efficacy, is going to be the limiting factor for what technology comes to you in your home. Yeah. Um, I, you know, in some of these behind the scene conversations, some of the devices that are being talked about, chatted about behind the scenes that are going to give you the ability to do a lot of the th- these at home safely, like Dr. Maxfield mentioned, it's pretty exciting stuff. Um, And I actually think that devices bring a whole nother, instead of the same retinol, niacinamide conversation that we're having, just like we had talked in a previous episode about some of the new, newly manufactured peptides and ingredients that some of these brands are working on to bring some more diversity into the space. I think skincare devices also bring some degree of diversity into the space. And they're really interesting what some of these devices can do. And even what we have at our disposal in the office is like really quite incredible. And I don't think we talk about that enough, but some of these devices that use certain wavelengths of light, incredible what they can do to the skin. Uh, So I think it's really interesting to see what we'll bring over at the counter essentially to a to consumers to just buy at home and use. So um, look out for that. I think we have a lot to say there. We'll link um, some of our favorite masks below if you're interested in getting an LED mask. But I think this validates uh, what we had put out a few years ago. And I feel good about that, that people have seen good results and people you know, share them with their friends. And now you know the LED market is taking off. Um, next topic, unless you wanted anything else to say about there. No, I'm good. <laughs> All right, next topic. So we wanted to talk about the rise of dermatologic skincare. Again, uh, just another validating topic here. I think it's really interesting. Um, This is another article coming out of Glossy. They have a lot of really good articles um, on beauty and beauty news in general. So they do a really good job reporting. 
Um, but they this one is basically talking about L'Oreal. L'Oreal is one of the biggest conglomerates. I don't know if a lot of people know this. Um, I, I know that a lot of people don't know this though. Um, because for example, if I post for um, a video about CeraVe product, people will say, oh, well, I thought you liked La Roche-Posay. And it's like, well, they're all L'Oreal brands, by the way. Um, and they're actually, in fact, part of the same division of the L'Oreal brands, um, which is split into several different divisions. And so L'Oreal, just to give you an idea, for those of you who don't know, like the skincare industry world, is that L'Oreal Beauty has four divisions. They have L'Oreal Lux, they have Consumer, and then they have their Dermatologic Beauty Division, and then they also have professional products. Now, within the Dermatologic Beauty Division, uh, which was recently renamed to the Dermatologic Beauty Division, there is, let's see, I'm trying to see, they have five brands now. It's La Roche-Posay, Vichy, CeraVe, SkinCeuticals, and Skin Better Science. These five brands are all under L'Oreal Dermatologic Beauty Brands. And according to L'Oreal's recent earnings report, that they had a 13% increase in sales year over year, which is huge for a big group like L'Oreal. And they said that their dermatologic beauty division saw the largest leap. So La Roche-Posay, SkinCeuticals, and CeraVe, this group of brands had the biggest growth. And that overall growth led the growth of L'Oreal as an entire uh, conglomerate, which includes their Lux brands and their consumer brands. So they actually have something to benchmark this against. It's not like they just do dermatologic beauty because they also own L'Oreal Paris, Garnier, um, Maybelline. They own Kiehl's. They own uh, a ton of other brands, right? So they, they, they have their consumer brands that are not dermatology brands. And then they have their dermatology brands and their dermatology brands are growing much faster than their consumer brands. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think it's, uh, so two things, I suppose. One, I think it's always eye-opening to see L'Oreal's umbrella and their reach. It's huge and it's, it's, it's amazing to see what they're doing and actually just get a peek behind the scenes. But with the more important side here, the dermatologic reach and impact. I am very happy for that for everyone's sake. And we've talked about how skincare has evolved over the last three years. The quality of products has just, just, I mean, it's, it's, in, it's incredible. It's rare to find a product that's just, just flat out bad anymore. Whereas I'd say in 2020, 2019, it was more exceptional to find a product that was good. And I think it does speak to how dermatologists have really taken hold in these social spheres and become a much more public engaging specialty, which is actually pretty, pretty rare for a doctor to do. Honestly, like that's something dermatologists have really taken a step forward into the public space, into these public squares. And I think positively changed the trajectory for skincare as a whole. So now I think the products that most people are going to buy, whether from L'Oreal and whether from brands that like COSRX, like we've seen them also transition to a lot of derm focused ingredients over the last year or two. These are huge things. And I, I think it's better for everyone overall. I think people are going to see in general more effective, more effective ingredients, probably less fragrance overall, but uh, more effective ingredients, less irritating allergenic ingredients. Not that they're not out there, but I think this is the direction it's all going. And I think it's going to continue that way. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, the growth, I think it makes sense as, as people lean more into science. It's something a little bit more concrete, something that you can hold on to. Um, it doesn't mean that the other brands don't have like 
if you look at Kiehl's, there's a lot of products from Kiehl's. There's a lot of products from L'Oreal Paris, which I love and I think are great products and maybe even the best products within their, um, in, in with what they do, right? So some of my favorite products come from those brands, but I think there is this tendency to lean towards science right now. And I think that a lot of brands, like you mentioned, Cosarexin and others are leaning more into dermatology in order because that it seems that that industry is going that direction. But I also think that you have to be like true to your brand origin story too, because you have like a, a, an audience that propelled you forward and they loved what you stood for. And just to change because the trend is changing in the direction of science and dermatologic beauty, does it mean that every brand should change in that direction or should brands stay true to who they are? You know, like there's a lot of brands out there that are more focused on natural quote unquote, clean beauty, um, fragrance even the way that their products smell or the packaging being like a cute watermelon or something like there are a lot of brands that do that and is it wise for them to now shift their like i I don't know like i don't know how consumers respond to one of these brands who are not dermatology brands going along and then saying hey now we are a dermatology brand is that would would you do that would you recommend that i don't know it's a that's tough because yeah i think that has a lot more to do with their vision direction and their following um, in terms of their customers. So I, I do think that a lot of brands kind of marry the new ingredients into their overall philosophy in as much as possible. But, you know, I work and I, but I think to that point, you know, I work with natural brands. I work with clean brands and I can respect their vision. So same, same thing with the way we talked about, I think it was, what was that max? The, mat, the Caudalie mask, the product may not have been for us, but is very true to their nature. And so I think you, especially over the last year, have done a good job separating out like this is not a CeraVe product, right? This is not a sensitive skin focused functional product. Mm -hmm. This is a product for someone who loves XYZ, muscadine grapes in their skincare. And that's okay. Like that's acceptable. As long Mm -hmm. as perhaps it's not outright harmful, like perhaps that is absolutely fine. So you're still going to have, I think, brands that have a very strong founder led vision. And it as I'm with you. I think it's good to kind of celebrate that alongside them, but acknowledge it for what it is. You know, it's not the CeraVe, it's not the Cetaphil, it's not the per- it's not the skincare for someone with eczema or sensitive skin, uh, and that's quite fine. Right. I'm almost inclined to think that most brands should lean into like what they're best at, and obviously, like you have to update for the times. But I don't think it's wise to if everybody that buys your product is really into clean beauty big subscribers of um, the EWG. I don't think it's wise to suddenly shift to being like a very dermatologic brand because I think then you lose your base and then you lose who you are. And then the question is, what products are you even going to put out next? You know, I had someone interesting tell me, they said it's easier to stick to what you believe 100% of the time than 99% of the time. Because like once you start to like 1% of the time change like what you believe in, then then it's like, who are you really even? And so it's almost easier to just like stay true to like your core values than it is to like deviate sometimes because like when is sometimes like and when do you deviate? Mm. So I don't know. My, my I, That's just sort of my thought is that like not everybody need just because L'Oreal's beauty, Derm Beauty Division is growing right now, maybe next year Lux will be growing much faster and everybody will now suddenly want 
um, to be have a different look and feel. So I don't know. I mean, that's just my thought. Obviously, I prefer the Dermatologic Beauty brands personally um, because I love the science and I'm a dermatologist, but not everybody loves me. So that's okay too. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, yeah, you definitely have to be fine with that too. <laughs> um, all right. So... Uh, so last thing here, let's talk about wrapping it up. What sunscreen have you been loving lately? Any new sunscreens you've been trying? So you actually, yeah, I've tried so many lately. The first one, I'll, I'm going to throw this out there and it's, I think this is a love hate one for me. Um, and there's a very specific reason why this is a watermelon sunscreen. And I'm not demonizing this product. I, I will tell you again here, if I'm allergic to a product, it doesn't mean it's a bad product, right? Like, cause that doesn't mean it's gonna be a problem for everyone. But the Glow Recipe, Watermelon Glow, Niacinamide Sunscreen. I've tried this a few different times and I keep forgetting that my skin has a problem with this product. Uh, so that, I think this is what I was allergic to last week <laughs> when I was spotted in the pro topic. I thought people didn't like that one because it pilled a lot. Did they reformulate? I don't know. I didn't, ha- I mean, I don't have that problem. So I've definitely not had that problem. I think the textural quality is great. But um, I have liked that. I also, again, have not liked that. But it blends really nicely, sits really nicely, has a really great texture. Pilling, maybe people have a problem with pilling. Maybe it just has to do with the simplicity of my average morning routine. But I have not mm-hmm. had an issue with that. Well, what are you loving? So that's that's what you're hating. What are you loving? Yeah, it's like a love-hate. The one that was actually really surprised, I don't know if you've seen the May Love Sun Protector. This is another new mineral sunscreen it's uh it's becoming a little more common to find relatively blendable mineral sunscreens and like that was a solid like solid two pea size amount for my hand there none there so this is an, this is definitely going to fall into that category of mineral sunscreen non-tinted that blends pretty dang well and that's a very rare combination so that one i had to give a shout out to uh it's also pretty inexpensive like may love has pretty affordable products too and then also the Naked Sundays brand. I have tried a few of these things. They have another invisible sunscreen. I can't remember which one it is. The Clear Glow Naked Radiant. Sundays. I think that's I don't even know this brand. You don't? You don't know? I don't know. That uh, Naked. It's a fun name, right? Naked Sundays. But they have a clear one, a see-through one that's really nice. And then they have a tinted or a mineral one. I think that this might be the tinted mineral one. But they're all really good. Like I've I've really actually loved this everything I've tried out of this line. Pretty well, yeah. f- 50 bucks, 20 bucks, 20 to 50 dollars. So, Th- yeah, $34 for their sunscreen, non nano zinc. It looks like the sunscreen is like their top product based on my brief looking into it. How many ounces are it? I will say, we got some criticism on our last video on budget sunscreens. I saw that I was that. reading through the comments, and it's actually a good criticism. So, I actually take criticism well. Um, when it's constructive. <laughs> so, uh, so it was very actually constructive because, you know, I always, I always look at the comments and a lot of people were saying, well, yeah, just because the product is less than $20 doesn't mean that it's a budget sunscreen because if it's like one ounce, then it's like $20 per ounce versus something that is $30, but three ounces, then that's better. Right. So, they said in the future, when we talk about budget sunscreens, we should always talk about the fluid ounces price, which I actually think yeah. is a fair, was a fair criticism. And we should definitely consider that when we say budget in the future. We have. We've actually had that discussion before, too. It, it's just harder to make happen, I think, 
than people realize because the ounces aren't listed everywhere. I think we even had the discussion even when we're making this video. We're like, God, let's just try to trick, pick like $20 because I think that's going to be an easier, like not easier, but like a realistic number that people can work with. Um, because yeah, every time, I think every time when we're editing like the videos and we're talking about the numbers to go on, I'm like, we try to think about the ounces as long as it's within reason, you know, we kind of mm -hmm. let it go. But yeah, we'll try maybe be deli more deliberate about that. Maybe just sunscreen because of like the amount you're supposed to use. The rest, like moisturizers or something else, like I feel like is maybe not as critical to get right. But I feel like sunscreen, just because you use so much every day and we want you to reapply it, we'll be more thoughtful about our recommendations in that category. I've yeah, been loving the, I don't know if you've tried it actually. This is a Sephora rep. Uh, you know how like you go into Sephora and like the people are helping you out? Uh, mm -hmm. and they're recommending stuff. I do that from time to time just to see like what's hot in the in the real world. Um, not like when me behind my desk, you know, <laughs> like that's now products in our world of delusion, um, but like in the real world. So I went to Sephora and I was asking the beauty rep there what um, what products they were loving and they, they love the Dr. Dennis Gross All Physical Ultimate Defense Broad Spectrum Sunscreen SPF 50. Mm. And... I'm using it right now and I actually quite like it. It's a full mineral sunscreen, um, fragrance free. And though it's mineral, it blends really well with my skin. So like no white cast right now, um, a little bit dewy, glowy appearance to it, not over the top. So if you're like more of a matte lover, you, you, I think you would like the sunscreen too. But I was actually like really impressed with how well that this product blended and I don't think it gets a lot of hype. So um good product let's talk about i'm, I'm gonna make sure it's 1.7 fluid ounces for 42 dollars, so about in the super good price range mm, on the expensive nice. side um i think that pretty much wraps up everything we wanted to talk about il-17 the rise of dermatologic skincare our new muscadine juice that's coming out led masks and dr maxfield's love-hate relationship with sunscreen uh <laughs> we will see you all in the next episode all right. We appreciate you all.